Guys, gals, men, women, children, UFOs, yetis, before we start this episode, please help Restaurant Fiction out by leaving a rating and review on iTunes. We don't ask for much, only this. Faden? Cut to. Exterior. Interior. Restaurant? Bar. Club. Day. Night. Action! Boom, boom, boom. Mic check. Sibilance, sibilance. If you hear some uh, extra ambient noise in the background, that is my dishwasher, our dishwasher. What's going on? My name is Monis Rose, and welcome to another episode of Restaurant Fiction, the podcast where we review your favorite fictional restaurants, bars, and clubs featured in TV and film, as well as provide key insight in the screenwriting world. This week, we review Salinger's prominently featured in the ultra-emo I Love the 90s Fox drama Party of Five, and our guest in the hot seat is executive producer of the show Mark B. Perry. Before we get into the review of Salinger's, we start this episode off with a funny anecdote that Mark provides. I think it really sets the tone of how creative of an individual he is. From your blog, you actually say that your most prized uh, piece of writing was a story you wrote in third grade. Uh, it was an FBI tale. Uh, first off, do you even remember what it was about, this uh, third grade FBI tale? I will never forget what it was about. The, the teacher, who was my favorite teacher I've ever had, her name was Mrs. Rosalind Hartzell, and she, uh, I, got, I reconnected with her a few years ago. She has passed away since then, but I'm so glad I found her. So that I could say, hey, just wanted you to know you inspired me to be a writer for the rest of my life. But she would come in uh, with a photograph that she had found either in a newspaper or a magazine. And she would have us write a short story about it. And then she would grade the stories and she would collect them. And then at the end of the year, we all made a book out of our stories, which is a pretty cool thing for a teacher to have third graders doing. And uh, she came in one day and she had this really beautiful black and white photograph of an old man's hands. And they were folded very gently across one another. Uh, just a beautiful photograph. And she said, write a story. And, you know, the other kids wrote my grandfather's hands or, you know, the hands of the old man. And my story was called Jack Arthur Serial Killer. What? <laughs> and I wrote a story about a serial killer who, in the opening, he murders these two women. One of them he stabs to death while she's in her bed, and the other one runs in on them, and then he kills her. And then he goes to this mountain cabin, and the FBI track him down, and then they somehow fool him, and they shoot him dead. And... um I think I can't remember now. My teacher wrote something on it, like very imaginative or something. And I think nowadays, if you know, if I were in third grade and I turned in that story, uh, they would have me go see the school psychiatrist. They would probably have social services visit my parents. But back <laughs> yeah. in the day, I was I watched a lot of TV when I was a kid. <laughs> And, you know, I saw that picture and that's what it inspired. But that's, that's always kind of made me chuckle that it was seen 
as creative as opposed to, oh, something's wrong with this kid. <laughs> that is fantastic. That is that's fantastic on your teacher's part and on your part. It was like a the, all the worlds combined sort of thing. Jack Arthur, serial killer. Hey, everyone. Today, we are in studio with Mark B. Perry. And the reason why is because he has dined once or twice, just like us at Restaurant Fiction, at the marina. It's a, it's a nice San Francisco restaurant. It's called Salinger's. And it's in the marina district for those of you that are not familiar with uh, the, I guess, the Bay Area or the Silicon Valley um, area. And Salinger's, even more specific, it's in the uh, Cow Hollow Historic Pacific Heights parts. Now, what type of clientele are you getting in these parts? And unfortunately, you are going to be getting mm, Silicon Valley uh, the clientele, but that also is a compliment as well. So it's good and bad. It's uh, uh, maybe bad for the folks who have have a history in the Bay Area that have seen the place uh, survive from the 80s into the 90s where it went through uh, the restaurant's big, huge growing pains. And now um, it's a well-oiled machine. Uh, usually, though, what is good about Challengers, uh, once again, it goes back to the clientele, that many of the Silicon Valley um, employees, whether they be the big, huge companies or the startups, they want the farm to table. They want the tasting menu. They want the place that has a Spotify mix of the latest uh, EDM mixes. You're not going to find any of that at Salinger's. It's not a diner, though. It is not. It's just a, an American grill. And that is a good thing. Uh, when you go in, there are dark mahogany booths, very masculine in tone, yet it is inviting for everyone. Do they specialize in seafood, even though there is the wharf? And no, they really don't. And even though there are many great oyster places, they don't really specialize in oysters either. They have them on the menu. They're cooked just fine. You can get your Chilean sea bass with a nice miso glaze. You can get that. You can get your, uh, you know, your West Coast oysters, which are a little more rockier than the East Coast setting. The biggest, I think the best thing, though, that Salinger's has to offer a few things, uh, their veggie burger. Uh, it comes with little bits of portobello mushroom as well as the French dip. Uh, you know, Salinger's not really famous for anything, but this French dip that they have uh, made a version of themselves is by far probably the best restaurant fiction has had. Did they invent or create the French dip? No, not at all. Did they perfect it? Yes, uh, it comes with this. It's very thinly sliced, well dry aged beef, uh, prime rib beef, and it's in between a hybrid of a brioche and a challah or an egg bread to some. And it's just crispy, it's golden, and a nice little light schmear with a mayo horseradish. Now, usually with French chips, what makes it the best is the aujou because usually a French dip is either hard or it's completely well done and the bread is stale. So you need the aujou to make it better. That is not the case for Salinger's French dip. It is just an enhancement. It is the cherry on top. You don't even need it, actually. Um, you get a sense of history. 
of San Francisco in the bathrooms, especially for the men. I do not know about the women, but they have actually newspaper headlines of the Chronicle from the uh, mid-1800s, and they actually are changed daily. And it was very interesting in all of our times there that even though, say, you know, the technology and the industrialized age, the, excuse me, the industrialized age really didn't hit yet, a lot is the same in terms of po- politics and uh, socioeconomics. It was actually very uh, comical in a way and ironic. Um, but anyway, if one doesn't want, yes, the hip, trendy, you need a three-month reservation to even dine their place, there's always going to be Salanders, and San Francisco needs Salanders. So, Mark, what do you, uh, you think of the review? Uh, any good, bad, what would you change, enhance? Well, it seems pretty accurate, but, you know, you have to bear in mind that I have not dined at Salinger's since 1998. <laughs> it's been a while. And if uh, if I were in the real Salinger's, you know, um, I have a feeling I might go for a burger. Medium rare? Uh, well, probably medium well because I'm scared of food. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, scared of food poisoning specifically because I've had it too many times in my life. So I'd be like, yeah, just cook it for me. I'll be fine. How important is Salinger's to Party of Five? I would say it was the heart of the show in many ways. Um, besides the house where they lived, which is their family home, Salinger's was the thing that had belonged to their mom and dad. And so holding on to the family business keeping it going when they were so young and didn't really know and were having to find their own way. You know, this was something that their mom and dad had created and they were trying to hold on to it. And sort of metaphorically, they were holding the family together even after their mother and father had passed away. And I think that in that regard, Salinger's was critically important to the show. And also it's, you know, that that show you would follow the characters. They all had their separate lives but this was a place where it would intersect very much like a family comes, comes together at mealtime, holding it together. Um, and we also like to do that in the show as a, as a nod to the, the pilot because the pilot had ended that way. And also there's the fun of Party of Five is not only restaurant lingo, but it's also you know a play on words and a reference to the five kids who are left behind and are trying to find their way without their mom and dad. I, I, I loved the set. We would we had a read through of every episode before we would film. Uh, the day before we started filming, we would bring the cast and the director. So some people from the studio and network would come by, and we would sit down. Typically, we had a catered lunch on the Salinger set, and we would do a read through of the episode. And I remember uh, being on the set and glancing through the prop menus for Salingers. And thinking, oh, yeah, I would totally come here to eat. How much research goes into the writing of Salinger's or a scene of Salinger's? And you can talk about that and also maybe even uh, talk. Are there, is there any thought, I guess, on the food that the characters are eating or the bar or the menu? One of my favorite scenes that I ever wrote took place in Salinger's when it wasn't about the food. It was about the ambiance. And it was actually my last episode before I left the show. And it was uh, just before the restaurant opens, Bailey is managing it, and he calls for the 
romance mix on the music. Uh, nowadays, I suppose it would be Spotify or Pandora. And uh, then he also calls for the lights to be, you know, set uh, for romantic ambiance, and they light the fire. And what he doesn't know is that he has just set the stage for Sarah's boyfriend, Elliot, who is played by Christopher Gorham, who comes in and sits down at a table with Bailey and then tells him that he's basically more attracted to Bailey than he is to Jennifer Love Hewitt's character, Sarah. So, um, but that was an instance where we said, how can we use the restaurant specifically as a nice counterpoint to the, or as a nice um, augmentation to this scene? Going uh, through your blog, well, one of your favorite movies is Breaking Away, and you enjoy the cement show Rectify, which uh, is yes. set in the South. Uh, you know, they they have fictional restaurants in them, too. So there's a pizza place in Breaking Away, and there's a diner in Rectify. Um, how important is the diner or restaurant in TV and film in general? Well, if you notice, a lot of, especially the more soapy shows, which are the things that I have written for, um, and even some procedurals, though, they, they all have uh, a hangout. It's a good thing for the writer to have a place to bring the characters together, but it's also good for production because it's a standing set, typically, and that makes it an easy and economic thing to shoot as opposed to going to a location and shooting in a real restaurant or a real um, coffee shop. Now, we did occasionally do that on Party of Five. I know I remember shooting in on the Sony lot, which is the old MGM lot in Culver City, which is where we filmed the show. In fact, one of our sound stages was one of the sound stages from The Wizard of Oz. But, wow. uh, yeah, we had, uh, there was a, the executive dining room, which was open to anybody there if you made a reservation. It was, I believe it's called the Rita Hayworth Room. And it was kind of this Art Deco um, upscale dining venue uh, for lunch. But we would use it as a restaurant. You could redress things, move things around, make it look like a different restaurant if our characters had to be someplace other than Salinger's. Um, so I, you know, I, and then, you know, on a procedural, I know that they often, the police meet in, in bars or restaurants as well. And it's, it's really a writer's convenience and it's for uh, production as well. Of all of all the shows that you've worked on, which one has had the best food? Um, in the writers' room? Yes. Well, I would have to say it was the Wonder Years, going all the way back. And the reason is, we had one of our writers' assistant assistants. Uh, his name was Jeff King, and he was a very very good chef. And once a week, usually on Fridays, he would make lunch for the writing staff. And it was always spectacular. We had a grill <laughs> outside, and he would he would cook for us. So I would say my fondest food memories are of the Wonder Years and Jeff King and his delicious grilled chicken. 
you know, you mentioned the Wonder Years. One of the episodes, it's not, it's not a food episode, but one of the episodes you wrote, uh, it's called Little Debbie. Or no, excuse me. Uh, yeah, it's called Little Debbie, and it features. Little Debbie, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and it and it features the famous lunch. I mean, excuse me, punch lady character. Uh, so you know, uh, Kevin is in this like dance hall, uh, and there is this punch lady serving Kevin. And it is why we're bringing it in is because uh, it was one of your first uh, episodes concerning food, um, and. Even the character, you know, the title of the character has food in it or it has a beverage in it. You know, was that intentional? You know, only in as as it uh, uh, fit in with the story because we needed we needed the straw that broke Kevin's back because in the story he thinks he's too cool to be at this little girl's cotillion and it's one thing after another and we really needed the straw that broke Kevin's back. And as I recall, it was something that the punch lady says to him that he finally just uh, bails on everything and goes outside. Um, and I don't remember if we pitched that it took place in the line to get punch or or was the punch lady. I remember specifically the punch lady was going to say the line, but I, I don't remember if we pitched it that way or if I, that was just something I made up when I was writing the script. But I would like to say that... It, there's an interesting piece of trivia about the punch lady, which is that the actress's name was um, Vanessa Brown. And I didn't know it at the time and I wish I had, but she had been, she had played Jane in some of the Tarzan movies back in the thirties. What? She also originated the role of the girl that was played by Marilyn Monroe in the movie, some like it hot. Vanessa Brown played that part on Broadway. And I didn't know that this woman who was a day player that we had cast to play this frumpy, you know, punch lady at this uh, little girl's cotillion had been this, you know, kind of a big deal back in the day. Now, when I find out, you know, somebody is going to be cast in a show, I look them up on IMDb and make sure I know more about them so I, I don't miss out. Party of Five, it aired when the dominant dramas were still mostly on network TV. Uh, how has storytelling changed throughout the years with the rise of cable and streaming? How long is your show? <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> it's only, I mean, it's going to be edited down to 30 minutes. Like I said, yeah, <laughs> I know. Um, that's a big question. Is there, um, is there a seen... big... Go ahead. I mean, is there a real Cliff Notes, Mark B. Perry version? A real Cliff yeah, Notes version? There, there, okay. Um, I've I've seen a lot of change since. I mean, I started in 1989 on The Wonder Years, and that's that's a few years ago. And you know, back then The Wonder Years had two acts. We had one commercial break in the middle of the show. I think back on that now with such fondness. But I've also seen there's a lot more pressure from the broadcast networks to spice things up. And I'm not talking about cayenne and chili powder. Um, you know, they're, they're always looking for more what they call promotable moments that they can take those few seconds out of a scene and splash them through all the promos to try to get people to tune in the show. And, you know, there's the old adage of sex sells. But also, Party of Five, I mentioned the Wonder Years had two acts. Party of Five, for an hour show, it had a classic... 
Uh, I believe we had a teaser in four acts, which is a classic television structure. But now the the networks, the broadcast networks, um, they've basically mandated a five or even six act structure for network shows, which you notice when you watch a network show now, there's a lot more uh, commercial breaks. And that for the writer, you know, that means that commerce is dictating storytelling and we have to constantly, you have to, when you break a story and you know you're going to have a commercial break, you want to up the stakes so that the audience stays invested and doesn't change the channel during the commercial break. And sometimes that means you have to create false stakes or, you know, make something happen that isn't really going to go anywhere but is exciting enough that hopefully people will continue to watch. And I feel like it's it's affected uh, good storytelling in that way to add all those commercial breaks. Has your storytelling style changed throughout the years? I'm not sure that it has, except that, like most writers, I, I've matured. Um, but I always – it was nice to hear you mention the humor in the Party of Five episode, Falsies, because I've always tried to write with a dash of humor. In fact, Chris Kaiser, one of the co-creators of the show – paid me a nice compliment. He said that he, he gets to write the funny episodes of Party of Five because Party of Five was not known as a funny show. It was known as a tearjerker. <laughs> it was. But, yes. um, I feel that even in the heaviest dramas, even on a show like Party of Five, which is dealing with grief of parents who were taken prematurely and these kids who are ill-equipped but trying to find their way through life, that humor Above all, it's one of the most human things. It's something that unites us. It is a way that you can get into a viewer or a reader's heart. And if you can get them to laugh with your your characters and with you, they don't realize it, but they're opening their hearts. And um, it makes them far more receptive to really getting them with an emotional sucker punch at the end of an episode, which is something that I think the Wonder Years did especially well. You know, you laugh, 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 and then you get this gut punch at the end. And to me, if if we've done that, we've we've done a good job as writers. When a show is not, say, a comedy and you have a comedic scene, it means more. It allows it allows the viewer to breathe a little bit as well. Yeah. It's true. You know, speaking of humor um, and restaurant-specific episodes, I wrote um, a Halloween episode, Personal Demons. And one of the storylines was very Salinger-specific because Charlie is trying to manage the restaurant, and this guy shows up who used to know and sometimes work for Charlie's father, uh, Nick. And this uh, character was played by Kenneth Mars, who is most famous for Mel Brooks movies like Young Frankenstein and The Producers. And he was cast as this kind of grifter character who, it turns out, actually comes in and steals some information about Nick and then opens some credit cards that basically Charlie has been taken advantage of. But there was some humor in that episode and it was also Salinger specific, so I thought it was worth mentioning. From an executive producer's role in running the writer's room, what are key elements, say, for young writers to keep in mind when they're in the room for the first time? 
Oh, um, well, the thing that I learned when I was a young writer in the room for the first time, I learned it from Jill Gordon, who's a fantastic writer. She's a great friend. She's a mentor to me. And she gave me three words to live by, and they are pitch without shame. And that means don't sit and bite your tongue and think this is a stupid idea, this is a bad idea, I can't pitch it, I'll embarrass myself. Pitch without shame because you never know when something that you say uh, might spark something else from one of the other writers. And also, a lot of times writers are so insecure, we second-guess ourselves that the thing we think is really stupid when we pitch it, somebody says, oh, my God, that's brilliant, let's do it. <laughs> so the mantra to live by for young writers and old writers alike is pitch without shame. What types of scripts do you like to read when you're uh, looking for some new writers? Personally, I like to read um, spec scripts of um, existing shows, and that's uh, that's I think that makes me kind of old school. But I like to see if a writer can adapt their voice to a show that I'm familiar with. Um, I'm also open to reading an original pilot or an original screenplay. Um, I know some writers will staff, some showrunners will staff and read plays or fiction, but I, I don't find that helpful because writing television is a different kind of thing. I mean, a playwright has a very specific voice. Once you become a showrunner and a show creator, yes, then that's important. But I feel like it, early on I want to know that a writer can adjust their voice to the tone of the show and the job that we're all doing. You were asking earlier about uh, what do we look for in young writers mm -hmm. and when you're hiring or staffing a show. And I look for, obviously, talent. I want to I wanna read something on the page. It doesn't have to be perfect, but if I find a handful of things or two or three things in a script where I think, oh, I've got writer's envy. I wish I'd written that. Um, that's, that's what I look for in their work. But then you also have to bear in mind that the other side of the equation is they need to be a good writer who's adaptable to the voice of your show. And you always take a gamble on whether or not that will pan out. But you also need to know, you want to get a feel for whether or not you can be locked in a room with this person all day long without wanting to kill them. <laughs> <laughs> So they, they, they hopefully smell good because, you know, if they're going to have B.O. when they meet you initially, you know that you can't stand them in a room. <laughs> well, that's true. And it also depends on what they order for lunch because <laughs> there's a thing that happens. Like there was a – we had a – one of my – I love Indian food. And I love to order Indian food from a place near uh, Universal. And in my last show, in my last show, Heartbeat, it basically the other writers banned it because it, you know, they didn't like the way the room smelled for the rest of the afternoon. <laughs> what's, what's the restaurant? Uh, Bollywood. In third grade, if I had written a restaurant into Jack Arthur's Serial Killer, it probably would have been Atlanta's famous drive-in, The Varsity. Okay. For their hot dogs and hamburgers. Or, because when I was in third grade, it was pretty new and a real treat, uh, McDonald's. So, what? <laughs> well, as a kid, I mean, third grade, you ask, yep. you know, I'd say if I were going to put a restaurant in, in the third grade, it probably would have been McDonald's or the Varsity. Excellent. Hey, thank you so much, Mark.
It was my pleasure, and good luck with everything. All right, thank you. All right, bye. Bon appétit. And if you did not catch that, we bookended this episode with the fictional restaurant from Mark's third grade serial killer story that he mentioned at the beginning. All right, so besides uh, Party of Five, Mark has written on a slew of shows. Be sure to check out all of them. To name a few, Party of Five, obviously, One Tree Hill, The Wonder Years. Mark also has a novel out called City of Whores. Be sure to check that out. And last but not least, once again, if you've enjoyed this podcast episode or previous episodes, please help Restaurant Fiction out by leaving a rating and review on iTunes. That way we can know what's working, what's not, what to improve upon. Also, if there is a guest you'd like to hear or a restaurant you'd like us to review, please let us know on on iTunes where you leave the review. That is the best way for us to see that. I'm Monis Rose, and as always, keep it real, keep it fresh, and keep it on the flip side. Cut to. Exterior. Interior. Restaurant. Bar. Club. Day. Night. Lowe's is here to help pros put more toward their bottom line with special Labor Day savings on what you need to get the job done. Like $40 off your choice of a DeWalt 12-volt max drill or 12-volt max impact driver featuring DeWalt's all-new 12-volt battery platform, now just $99. And whether updating a property or building new homes, save up to 15% off select custom windows and doors. Whatever the day, whatever the job, do it right for less. Start with Lowe's. Offers valid through 9-1 U.S. only. Hi, I'm Jay Farner, CEO of Quicken Loans, America's largest mortgage lender. I've got great news. Mortgage interest rates have dropped. So if you're thinking about buying a home, right now is the time to lock that low rate, even before you find the home of your dreams. With our exclusive Rate Shield approval, the low rate you lock today is protected for up to 90 days while you shop for your new home. With a Rate Shield approval, if rates go up, your low rate stays locked. But if rates go down, you get that new, even lower rate. Either way, you win. Talk to us today at 800-QUICKEN or go to rocketmortgage.com to take advantage. Here's another great reason to work with us. For a record nine years in a row, J.D. Power has ranked Quicken Loans highest in the nation in customer satisfaction for primary mortgage origination. Again, to lock in today's low mortgage interest rate and get the security of our exclusive rate shield approval, call us today at 800-QUICKEN or go to rocketmortgage.com. For J.D. Power award information, visit jdpower.com. Rate shield approval only valid on certain 30-year fixed rate loans. Call for cost information and conditions. Equal housing lender. License in all 50 states. NMLS number 3030.